the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. There were constituents of mine who came to me for help, and I had initially rebuffed them. And I worried that that if we had permissive legislation, people like my mother might, acting on a temporary whim, might commit themselves to something that deep down they didn't really want. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 Cast. There are sufficient number of compelling cases of people who need some legal provision to protect them from criminal prosecution. Hello, welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. You might recall a couple months ago, I talked with Christopher Ford, who is a disability rights advocate in New Zealand, about assisted suicide. He had changed his mind from supporting it to absolutely opposing it. And his country will vote in November on whether their country is going to legalize the practice. Even in the middle of a pandemic, perhaps especially in the middle of a pandemic, the ethics of -of end-of-life care matter tremendously. And so not only in this podcast are we covering both sides of the 180, which is a promise that I have made to you, but also I think it is important to cover during this time when resources in the healthcare system are so stressed, whether it's a nationalized system or not. Um, Euthanasia, is legal in seven U.S. states, five countries, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Canada. All of these places are hit with the pandemic. And you can't deny that whatever side you're on, wherever these medical aid and dying laws are enacted, the number of people who use them climb higher and higher and don't seem to be leveling off anytime soon. So if anything, with every day that passes, this seems to be a more important conversation to to have. And we've seen that these laws follow almost a a set pattern of evolution expanding from covering only the terminally ill to allowing prior consent to the disabled and even to minors. And if aid and dying laws are about dignity and autonomy, then one of the questions we must ask ourselves is, why would we deprive others of the same rights? And why would we restrict it to certain groups? So these are the questions that we're grappling with, and hopefully we can get some answers today. And now that we have the COVID-19 crisis, we, we have to put it in the context, as I said, of those scarcity of resources. These are really grim questions, but I don't think that we can flinch in examining them 
not if we want civilization to continue. My next guest is a former MP, MP for Twickenham in London, England. He was the leader of the Liberal Democrats from 2017 to 2019 and the Secretary of State for Business, Innovation and Skills from 2010 to 2015. I found an article he wrote for a site called Limdeb Voice, Lib dem voice i can talk about whether he uh, about why he changed his mind on the subject and so of course i had to speak to him about his 180 vince cable thank you so much for coming on the 180 cast thank you um i'm very happy to pursue the conversation do you want me just to introduce um how i got to this point or would you like to pose questions well before we get started i just want to let uh just remind the listener really quick that we release episodes every friday so don't forget to subscribe so you can stay notified of that and share the podcast if you found it interesting today's episode is sponsored by my pillow more about them in a little bit so you used to oppose assisted suicide. So can you take me back to, to that mindset and why you believed what you believed and what your reasons were at that point? Uh, I suppose my original position was based on partly on the kind of general uh, philosophical view about the protection of all human life, uh, but also based partly on personal experience. Um, I, 20 years ago, my late wife, Olympia, died of cancer. She went through, as many people do, a very difficult terminal condition. Uh, but she always um, believed that she should live her life to the full and was strongly opposed to any attempt to terminate it, however difficult and painful her condition was. And that I lived with that for some years. Uh, then I had a, a rather contrasting experience with my mother, who, like many elderly people now, descended into dementia and mental illness in old age. Uh, and she, like a lot of people in those situations, would one week be saying, I'm fed up with life, I want to die. And then the following week would be full of life and um enjoying going to the park and reading books and so on. And and I worried that, that, that if we had permissive legislation, people like my mother might, acting on a temporary whim or, or a, an upswing in their mood, uh, might um, commit themselves to something that deep down they didn't really want. So, so a mixture of general principle and personal experience. That was why I... Uh, opposed assisted dying when it was brought before Parliament earlier in my term. So how did you come to make this 180? What sort of circumstances or relationships, facts, arguments led you to change your mind? Well, it wasn't abrupt. I suppose I gradually changed my views. Uh, what has been happening in the UK is that there's been a gradual uh, shift of opinion um, based partly on uh, individual anecdotes, people's experiences of people dying under terrible conditions, motor neuron disease, desperately wanting to finish their lives with some dignity, but their relatives being unable to help them for fear of uh, criminal prosecution. Uh, and indeed, there have been several cases where the police were involved and were obliged to um, threaten the loved ones with criminal action. 
uh, I, because I was a member of parliament, uh, there were constituents of mine who were in that position and came to me for help. And I had initially rebuffed them. But when I considered several of these cases, I found it very difficult to see why people who were perfectly lucid and clear in their commitment and indeed their love for each other uh, should be denied that freedom. So that was the, the first influence. I think the second was this in arguing the case uh, in Parliament and elsewhere. Um, I, I tried to confront the argument which had been a problem all along, which was how do you provide safeguards so that it's not abused, so that people like my mother would uh, commit themselves to dying because of some mental condition. Uh, and I, it was fairly clear that a great deal of thought has now been given to this by the various professional medical bodies and others. And I think there is now a clear understanding of the, the type of safeguard uh, that needs to be introduced, that it should relate to terminal conditions, that there should be quite explicit consent judged by a medical practitioner or two, or, and if necessary, a psychologist, that this consent is given by somebody of clear mind. I mean, one can argue about how the legislation can be phrased. And indeed, I was going to bring in legislation had Parliament not been cut short by Brexit. Um, and uh, I would have introduced into the legislation fairly substantial safeguards to make sure that it was not being used by people with mental illness, um, depressive conditions, um, people with senility, and so on. So it would be assisted suicide would be allowed under a very narrow range of conditions. Those cases that you initially mentioned where the people were very lucid, do you recall any other details of those cases? Were they suffering tremendously um, like physically and that couldn't be alleviated or was it psychological suffering? Well, it was largely um, advanced physical conditions and not a neuron disease is the one which um, keeps coming back. I mean, there are very many people with motor neuron disease, but it is an appalling illness in which people are fully mentally aware, uh, but they're gradually losing control of their muscles, uh, including their ability to swallow. Uh, and they, they suffer very, very greatly in the final stages of the illness. Um, and there were those and some others that have been publicized in the press or been part of uh, campaigns or been part of legal actions. And they are very, uh, very compelling. I know that there is this old adage that um, good, good cases uh, don't make good law necessarily, but I, I think there are a sufficient number of compelling cases of people who wish to help with a dignified death, who don't have the money to go off to Switzerland um, and enjoy that particular facility they have um, and need some help, some legal provision to protect them from criminal prosecution. So as far as the safeguards are concerned, this is something that of course, Chris Ford, who I mentioned earlier, was really concerned about. He's very skeptical of uh, the safeguards. 
And there's no real way, even though our legislation states that there will be checks done to ensure that people aren't pressured into it, there is no complete way to ascertain that somebody has not been pressurised into taking the step of voluntary euthanasia. Because that's one of the biggest safeguards that people are concerned about to make sure that people aren't coerced into it, that they are choosing it um, of their own of their own volition. What do you say to that? Well, that was what what concerned me originally. Why I was opposed to uh, assisted dying because it, you know the, the, the argument was advanced that there was a kind of slippery slope and uh, you can never um, have proper safeguards, but. It does seem to me that if, if if we do believe in the integrity of doctors and there are several uh, independent um, medical practitioners who have to give their assessments, maybe a psychologist as well, maybe there, there is a time period um, uh, governing the, the period in which of terminal conditions. I mean, you can't safeguard against every abuse i mean that you know i I think the kind of thing that i was anxious about was um you know greedy relatives trying to pressurize an old lady into um assisted suicide in order to get their money but but if 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 it is quite specifically excludes people with um a mental condition or dementia or something of that kind um I, I'm, I'm, I think protections could be built in. Um, there may be odd cases that would slip through, but in overwhelmingly, you, you could make this a, a reasonably watertight system. In my introduction, of course, I mentioned that these laws tend to follow kind of a, an evolution where they start with exactly what you're you're saying, where there's very tight safeguards. It's only for people with with terminal illnesses. And then they sort of expand to cover more and more people. Um, what do you think? Do you have reason to believe that that would not happen in England? That the, those safeguards would would really stick down, and and you guys would stick to that, or or do you feel like once you put the foot in the door, then other people who maybe are more radical than you in their beliefs on assisted suicide? would then sort of take over the conversation and move policy? Um, I, I don't see any reason to assume that the slope is slippery and that you're, you're bound to advance to more and more um, extreme positions. As I said, the uh, one of the, the main guarantors of um, responsible opinion are the, the various medical bodies, the, the associations who represent doctors who would have to certify. And they are very careful um, to ensure that their members are, as a, as a group, are balloted to ensure that they're totally content with this. Um, doctors, are, are, as a group, are most unlikely to want to be compromised by over-permissive legislation um, and act as a generally conservative force. So I, I see no reason why this should continue to escalate. And if you consider um, something like abortion, which is also involves fundamentals around human life, um, the, the legislation was introduced in the UK, well, 50 years ago, something of that order, and the the set of conditions haven't been liberalized indeed there are 
pressures to tighten them somewhat. Um, and, 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 and certainly the, the idea that one thing leads automatically to another, there's no logical or, or historical reason to believe that will happen. Hey, it's still me. I just want to tell you about this episode's sponsor, MyPillow. Stress and anxiety is running high nowadays, and that makes sleep difficult. That's a problem because sleep is critical to your overall health, and lack of good sleep can affect your immune system, increasing your risk of catching viruses of many sorts. I'm not saying that you need to buy any certain product or you're going to get sick, okay? But you should prioritize making sleep easier and more comfortable. The inventor and CEO of MyPillow and his 1,700-something staff have turned their attention to producing thousands of masks per day to aid in the fight against COVID-19, which is extremely good news, but that doesn't mean they've abandoned their mission of helping you get a good night's sleep amid the coronapocalypse. You can still get great discounts on all MyPillow products on MyPillow.com by clicking on the listeners specials. Get deep discounts on MyPillow's mattress toppers, pillowcases, bed sheets, and a bunch more. And remember, MyPillows have a 10-year warranty, which is a lot more security than I'm getting from the U.S. government. For 180 casters like you, Mike is offering a great deal. The buy one, get one free for the standard MyPillow plus free shipping. The folks at MyPillow don't want you to compromise on your sleep and be stuck with anything less than a solid, restful night's sleep so that you can deal with everything that goes into being in lockdown. And Mother's Day is coming up. If you notice that your wife is tossing and turning, think about what you can do to get her a good night's sleep. That is probably the thing she most wants out of life as a mother, speaking from experience. And MyPillow is offering a 60-day money-back guarantee, so orders placed between now and the end of April will have their 60-day money-back guarantee extended through July 1st, 2020. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza sheets, which are Egyptian cotton. They're available with deep pockets so that they don't pop off the corners of your mattress, even with a pillow topper, because that's the most annoying thing ever. Plus, there's free shipping. Enter promo code 180CAST, that's 180CAST, or call 800-506-2641 for awesome specials. That's 800-506-2641. Use promo code 180CAST and let them know we sent you. All right, back to it. So what do you make of the the way that the numbers have climbed in the countries and states that have legalized it? sociologists have noted for for some time that normal quote unquote normal suicide hope you know hopefully nobody ever thinks suicide is truly a normal thing but you know suicides where people take their life with a gun or they hang themselves or 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 poison themselves that that kind of suicide in fact acts as a sort of social contagion and within peer groups at high schools for instance you see sort of clusters of of suicides and some people are, are starting to wonder if the same thing might be applying to legal assisted assisted dying and may account for why the numbers have risen so rapidly. In the Netherlands, about 4.5% of their deaths are accounted for by um, assisted suicide. So what do you make of that? Is that a, a really bad argument? Is it a point you would concede? What do you think? Well, the, the Dutch case is not really relevant to this argument. I mean, they, they have effectively legalized euthanasia in, in Holland, as I understand it. 
-hmm. it's a it's a very permissive uh, regime I mean it may something's come out of the Dutch culture um, certainly in the UK the, there's been no wish to go down the Dutch road um, and to insist that safeguards should be very tight uh, one thing I should add um, is that when I introduced a debate in Parliament on this a few months ago uh, quite a lot of MPs um, came forward with very, very moving accounts of their own relatives and friends who had been put in an impossible position by the absence of assisted suicide. Um, and several of them, like me, had started off with a much more socially conservative position, and they represented people across the political spectrum. Uh, so I, I think we have been, if anything, too careful and too cautious on this issue. Were were many other uh, members of Parliament moved as you were in in hearing those those testimonies? Yes, it, and, and the the debate we had, which you can probably find on the record, um, I spoke on it. My colleague Norman Lamb also spoke very movingly. An MP called Nick Bowles, um, an independent Conservative, was very very moving indeed. A Labour uh, MP, uh, Paul Bromfield from Sheffield, um, described in graphic terms how his father had tried to kill himself and indeed I think had succeeded in, in a rather painful and unpleasant way because he was denied um, help uh, in, 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 through assistance. Uh, and I hadn't realized until I heard that debate quite how many people were living with this agonizing problem. There were people on the other side of the argument, but mostly they were arguing from a rather abstract uh, theological position rather than from the practicalities. So as far as the safeguards are, are concerned, when you say terminal illness, what what do you think sort of the the language should actually be for that? Is it like you know death in the foreseeable future, which is what Canada is debating now with um, Bill C seven, or is it you know within your prognosis is within six months, or like what kind of time frame are you looking at? Well, six months was when I was discussing my own prospective legislation. It was suggested that six months was. A sensible period um, for the foreseeable, you know, the, the, the Canadian definition is perhaps a bit too open-ended. But, um, no, I mean, th there is room for argument, uh, and we have legislation that goes through two Houses of Parliament, and uh, I'm quite sure that the formulation could be found that um, meets sensible objectives. But I, I, six months was what I was considering. So, like I, I mentioned earlier, the, the resources are being seriously constricted right now in a way that we haven't seen maybe, maybe in a century um, with people needing new beds, like, you know, starting pop-up hospitals, converting schools and, and hospitals and things just to get beds for people with COVID-19. Um, do you think though that uh, like let's say if it were legalized if assisted dying were legalized today that given that there's always a cost benefit analysis sadly with healthcare that doctors might 
you know, against maybe their, their better judgment, feel pressured or, or guilted into sort of pushing people into doing this sooner rather than later or, or pushing prognoses that are, are closer than maybe they need to be just in order to make room and, and free up resources for people? Well, this is going to happen. It already is happening. And as I understand the situation in Italy, which is the most extreme, but it could potentially happen in the UK in the next few weeks. The position has been reached where enormous numbers of people are being admitted to um, emergency wards uh, with this condition. And you can typically get a situation where there are 60 patients um, in an extreme state, but only 20 ventilators are available. And the question arises as to who should be given these ventilators. Should it be um, on a first-come, first-served basis, which is um, pretty arbitrary and often very unfair, or perhaps a more rational basis would be to say for the clinicians uh, to be able to make a judgment as to who has the best life expectancy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In practice, they are having to make those judgments in Italy at the moment. They're quite open about it, and they're having to select people on the basis of age, for example, which is rather alarming when you can I'm 77, <laughs> probably one of the only casualties. Um, but but what, what is right, it seems to me, is that this, this horrendous life-death decisions shouldn't just be left and imposed as a burden on the doctors who are under enough stress anyway, mm-hmm. but that mm-hmm. as a society, we, we should um, engage in a proper debate about this and accept that if there has to be a, a rationing of life-saving um, equipment and treatments um, to give the doctors some clue as to what would be the proper and ethical way of dealing with it. Yeah. I mean, in that sense, I'm, I'm sure you're talking about a lot of people who are on ventilators, maybe for other illnesses where you might need to pull the plug to save somebody who has a, a better chance of recovering. Well, that kind of moral dilemma um, does arise with people, who, as you know, who are in comas uh, and the Uh, 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 you know you you do hear of some very extreme cases which have to be taken to court to deliberate upon but in in, in under normal circumstances the medical profession is very reluctant to pull the plug um but only if relatives um concur that that there is no hope of resuscitation so i mean these are very difficult ethical issues uh with which medics have to confront on a day-to-day basis. I mean, the, the, under this epidemic, we, we're going to find much more acute choices. Yeah. Under such an emergency situation, do you think doctors are still obligated to get family members on board with doing something like that or even get family members on board with supporting somebody's decision to be euthanized if that were legal? Well, obviously, as far as possible, um, you know, consent should be sought. Um, but I, the, the situation I described, which I believe is now happening in Italy, where doctors are having to ration life-saving treatment and equipment, uh, they ultimately have to make the decision as to who should be saved and who shouldn't. 
um, uh, and it's an utterly appalling and invidious situation, but it is what is happening. And I can see this happening in the UK before long, probably in the United States, where the epidemic is getting out of control. Yeah, I'm, my state is on lockdown now as of yesterday, so <laughs> it's... Uh... I never expected to live through something like this, but here we are. It feels very surreal. I don't know about you, but it, it kind of feels like you're living inside of a, a political TV drama or something like that. It's just insane. Well, it is. and it, it's The word surreal is all too true. As it happens, I'm in self-isolation, because I partly because I'm classified as vulnerable because I'm over 70. I'm not quite sure why, but I am. Uh, and I've just returned from Australia, um, and as an overseas traveller, I'm requested by the government to maintain self-isolation. But I, so I, I'm in my wife's cottage in the middle of the New Forest, which is one of the most beautiful places in the world, and I'm going out every day with her on long walks in exquisitely beautiful scenery with the bright sun it, it's it's on one level it's it's wonderful but on, on the other hand this appalling um pandemic is raging all around us it's very difficult to reconcile those two things yeah i was just gonna say like how do you fit both of those things in your brain at the same time like my we we just went for a, a family walk yesterday and the sun is shining and like there are lots of people out almost like it's summertime because all of the kids are the schools are closed, but it's like everything feels normal, but then you go and look at the news and you're just heartbroken by what's happening and the terrible decisions that people have to make. Um, but as, as far as the assisted suicide debate is concerned, since you've been on both sides of it, what what are the biggest points that you think are most persuasive and least persuasive about the the anti euthanasia side. What do you what do you think are are you know points that you would grant them or or that win people over? And what do you think are just things that they should just stop just stop talking about? Well, I I, I don't think you can stop talking about um, issues. Mm, yeah, but as far as like particular arguments. The key issue is safeguards, and at some point, one has to make a judgment. Um, you're never going to have absolute um, perfect safeguards, but the, the question is whether a sensible, reasonable person would judge that the safeguards and the protections through uh, independent doctors, psychologists, or whatever, whether this is adequate. That, is, to me, is the nub of the debate, because we're never going to convince people who take a, or some religious denominations do, that, that this is wrong in all circumstances, and nor is it helpful, I think, to take the, the the view of people who actually rather do believe in euthanasia, and which is, of course, a much more extreme position. So neither of those two seems to me are very helpful. Uh, and that the, where the debate should focus is on the safeguard question. So as far as the pro-euthanasia side is concerned, what do you think are the the, the strengths and weaknesses? Because, of course, the... the um the people who oppose your position, their favorite talking point seems to be the safeguards and how 
and how those safeguards are failing or or being removed. So how do you counter that? Well, uh, I think we just take that on and accept that that is a an entirely legitimate area of concern. And I think have to argue through very carefully with the professional bodies of the medical practitioners and and so on to to make sure that they are comfortable as professionals with the ethical quality of decision making that we are coming forward with in the legislation. I, I don't. I can't think one could do any better than that. So you don't think that doctors should be required by law to administer uh, a lethal injection or to recommend it in any way? Do you believe that there should be exceptions for doctors who aren't comfortable with it? Of course, yes, of course. And, and as already happens, for example, with abortion, um, as, as I understand it, medical practitioners can choose not to participate. I think that's the law. And certainly in a case like this, if medical practitioners had conscientious objection for religious or other reasons, of course, that, that must be right, that, 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 that it would be accepted. Yeah, uh, you you would think so, but it's still constantly being argued and brought up in the courts over and over again in the United States about, uh, you know, state governments trying to make sure that doctors and nurses can't opt out of be evol- involving themselves in, in procedures like that. It's, it's crazy, but I, yeah, I agree with you. It seems pretty common sense to me. Um, so what... If you if you had somebody sitting next to you and you got to talking and and this issue came up about uh, assisted suicide or aid in dying um, and they're like I don't know I, this just makes me really uncomfortable that that just doesn't quite set right with me and you just had a few minutes talking to them what sort of approach would you take to get them thinking about changing their mind. Um, well, I don't necessarily believe that I should change their mind. Um, I mean, as a legislator, my, my job was to bring in legislation that represented a reasonable consensus mm. rather than to have everybody's mind changed. No, I think what I would say, well, you know, this is this is a very personal area of decision-making. If you, you feel uncomfortable, then, of course, I respect your discomfort and the fact that this is not the thing for you uh, and that uh, I, I started off by describing the position of my late wife who was very adamantly opposed to terminating her life earlier than um, you know her biology allowed so I, I would of course respect the, the fact that they feel uncomfortable but I would say to them look um, all I can say is that if this happened to me uh, and my wife also, uh, we've taken the view that, that if we were um, facing a, a, a grossly undignified and unpleasant death, we would want a bit of help to bring it to a premature end. And that would be our personal choice, our personal judgment. And we want to have a law that enables people who feel like that to have their wishes respected. We're not imposing it on you. And we're not threatening you. You, if you wish to live your life the way you wish, well, that that is a matter for you. It is for the benefit 
the really quite small number of people who have these uh, appalling conditions like motor neuron disease uh, and simply would rather um, have the opportunity to die a little earlier in a dignified way. Thank you so much for joining me today, Vince. This has been an interesting conversation, a constructive conversation, I think a good counterpoint to the episode I mentioned earlier with Chris Ford. I think that's episode 48. I will link it in the episode description for the person listening. Um, yeah, this gives everybody a lot to think about, you know, on top of all of the things we're already thinking about in terms of the pandemic. But as I said, tough questions, we need to um, face them head on. And I think we've we've done that here. Okay. Thank you very much indeed um, for conducting the interview very well. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You can follow Vince on Twitter at Vince Cable, C-A-B-L-E. And you can call or text the flip phone at 323-999-1802. If you are flipping out about this subject or something else I or one of my guests has said, that's 323-999-1802. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at 180cast, where I sometimes post sound bites from these episodes. Please give the podcast a review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. If you do like it, it does help in getting this podcast in, in the range of more ears. You can follow me at Georgie underscore Borman on Twitter. I also have a Facebook page for you people who like Facebook. 180cast has a Facebook page as well. I am a senior contributor at The Federalist, and I'm contributing regularly to The Post-Millennial as well, where you will find more of my lifestyle-esque, uh, culture-oriented pieces. I do hope you join me next week and every other Friday for our breakdown sessions where we talk about the news and the big issues of our day, COVID-19 among them, of course, and uh, talk about what, what really matters and try to bring some moral clarity into all of the cultural and political confusion. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got in the middle of the struggle. Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got. Executive producer Kevin McCullough. Music by Reefy Craft and Joe Kim Norton. What I need, who I've got in the middle of the struggle. Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got to be.